0: This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. This episode features interviews recorded at the 2016 American Revolution in the Mohawk Valley Conference, organized by Brian Mack and Norm Bolin of the Fort Plain Museum in Fort Plain, New York. The event attracted over 200 people from the United States and Canada who attended talks held at Fulton Montgomery Community College in the town of Mohawk, just outside Johnstown. The attendees went on bus tours of Mohawk Valley Revolutionary War Sites, feasted on a colonial-era banquet at the historic Van Alstyne House in canada and relaxed at an opening reception at the Fort Plain Museum. We'll have three interviews on this episode. Phil Weaver of the Hudson Valley has the story of the Jersey Grays, who served in the Mohawk Valley region in 1776. We'll also talk with President James Madison, as portrayed by actor Kyle Jenks. And we begin with the story of Molly Brandt, a Mohawk Indian woman who was an important figure in the history of the Mohawk Valley, and Canada. Bob Cutmore at the American Revolution in the Mohawk Valley Conference. Uh, and we're talking now with Lois Minor-Huey. How are you doing, Lois?
1: I'm doing fine now that my talk is over.
0: <laughs> uh, well, what a good talk it was. And uh, I, I knew you and knew of you uh, before this uh, conference because your area or one of your areas of expertise is the life of Molly Brandt. Can you give us the, uh, a quick description of who is Molly Brandt?
1: Molly Brandt was, lived with Sir William Johnson in the Mohawk Valley. Uh, they had eight children together. She was a Mohawk Indian woman, and she helped him make his contacts with all of her people and helped him build his power uh, until he became the Commissioner of Indian Affairs in, for New York and the North. And so she um, ran, helped run his, his house at Johnson Hall, and then when he died, she, she left with the eight children and went back to, the, to live with the Indians again for a while.
0: Mm-hmm. But, and and uh, it was interesting to me how you followed her life. But it is such a remarkable story, and it, it's got so many aspects uh, to it. Um, for one, the Mohawks, or maybe the Iroquois in general, uh, kind of uh, had a bigger role for women than, for example, women had in English society.
1: Absolutely true. Uh, It was a matrilineal society, which means that the women handled all of the property, things belonged to them, and they controlled the inheritance. Uh, The children were their children. Mm -hmm. The husbands moved into their longhouses and stayed with with that clan. And so in all together, um, they even had the power, although it didn't happen very often, to decide who was going to be the next chief and if they didn't like what he was doing, to decide that he had to go and would choose a new one. They also had the power that if the warriors wanted to go to war and the women did not think they should do that, they would just withhold all the supplies and the warriors were on their own. Uh, Indian warriors could always go out and do this if they wanted to. But in order to have the support of the whole village, the women had to agree that they should do that.
0: Although they shared a bed and a bedroom and had all these children, were they ever married, William and Molly?
1: I don't think so. Um, Her son George, in a Canadian legal case, said that they were married by the Mohawk uh, custom. And I, I really doubt that ever happened. I mean, Sir William was one of those kind of guys, and um, I don't think Molly cared, and so they just went on.
0: In fact, it was wasn't it sort of uh, illustrative of the standards of the day. I mean, I remember even reading about um, people in England in this 18th century. You know, the the a man of means, uh, you know, could have um, mistresses, children by other people. And what was considered bad was if he didn't support them.
1: Yes, and Sir William certainly did. He did not try to hide these children. He didn't try to hide the fact that he was with an Indian woman. They lived in his house, they ate at his table, and everyone who came there met them and uh, knew that they were people that he really loved.
0: Now, uh, Sir William Johnson was a a colonial leader in uh, upstate New York, and he died a couple of years before the revolution broke out. He died in 1774. And there's a whole follow-up story as to what happens to his household, of which she's probably the chief member. Um, she left Johnson Hall in Johnstown where they were living and kind of set up in an area uh, west of here. Where, where, where did she go and why did she go there?
1: She went back to her original village, which was the Indian Harry, not the same Harry we know now. It was uh, more out a little bit west of here. And still standing there today is a church that Sir William Johnson built for the village, as well as a large Dutch barn that belonged to her stepfather, Brandt. The house was in between, and there were other houses scattered all over that area. And that was the Indian Harry, not the one we know it. we're in now.
0: And her brother, for example... Uh, left for Canada, I think, in 1775. Sir John Johnson had to flee to Canada in 1776, but she hung on a bit bit longer. And I thought it was interesting, and I don't mean to put words in your mouth, but it seemed to me in your talk, you said, one of the reasons was that when Sir William died, what he left to a lot of her children was land up in this area where she moved to. and She wanted to stay here as long as she could, hoping you know, that the British would come back and win and she could get the land to her children.
1: Mm-hmm. Exactly right. He left them 132 pounds of money besides these strips of land. Uh, the older kids had a, a land that have, was already kind of developed and had mills on it and farms. Uh, the younger kids got the uh, ones that weren't so developed in and, in and, and, Also, he left them these strips of land out in Kingsland, which is out toward Herkimer, where he expected them all to settle and live together um, when they were grown up and ready for that.
0: But within, uh, I don't know what the time frame exactly was, but my sense is a year or two, it became too difficult for her to stay even where she had had moved to, and she ultimately had to go to Canada.
1: She was there for three years, and the rebels, uh, what she always called the rebels, so I use that term, uh decided that she shouldn't be there, that she was sending, she was a spy for the British, she was sending information, and so they decided that it was time for them to leave. And they raided her house, they came in at night, they scared the children, and did all these things so that she said, it's it's not safe here anymore, I'm going to take my children. And she went to various Iroquois villages all the way to, and then ended up at Fort Niagara.
0: And ultimately, she end up in Canada, or I mean, or did she stay? Was that in Canada, or did no.
1: that was a, the Fort Niagara we know now on the on Lake Erie here? Um, it got so bad there because they had you know thousands and thousands of Indians and Loyalists and all kinds of people coming there that she decided to take the children and go to Montreal, and she went there for a while. Then when sullivan and clinton came through the seneca villages and wiped out so many of their homes burned all their crops did all these things she decided gee maybe she better go back to niagara where they they would need her but she only got as far as carton island which is an island at one end of the lake and at the beginning of the saint lawrence and she decided that she would just stay there the rest of the war
0: but after the war where did she go
1: After the war, she went to Kingston, Ontario, which was a town set up for Loyalists, for people who needed, yeah, and that's where they even moved some of the buildings from Carlton Island to Kingston in order to get started on the building of of homes for the Loyalists. And so that's where she went and where she spent the rest of her life.
0: And she lived uh, many years after the Revolution? she
1: She was 60 when she died, so 1796. So. And, and also,
0: um, I, mean, I should ask, you started working on this material, or you worked at Johnson Hall in Johnstown.
1: I'm an archaeologist, and I work, uh, well, I'm retired, but I still go into the office a couple of afternoons a week, I've never really left. Um, and I did a lot of archaeology at Johnson Hall, and so we started talking about interpretation at Johnson Hall, and how we weren't talking about Molly Brandt, and so... A couple of us decided we would take on the research and the person in charge said, well, you might get enough for a brochure, you know, but take a a try and see. And, of course, as so many cases with women's history, it's there. It just hasn't been noticed before. And before we ended up, we had enough not only for a brochure, but for a book.
0: Well, maybe we should conclude with that. Lois uh, Minor-Huey, you and I believe another person uh, wrote a book, or maybe uh, tell you know, Bonnie Poulis, Uh will tell us about the book.
1: Um, it basically is all written based on original sources. We didn't go to any of the secondary stuff at all. And we just went through all the original papers, pulled out everything we could find about Molly Brandt, and then sat—actually, I wrote it, but we sat down and put it together— Um, Bonnie helped a lot with the research and so we ended up uh, getting it written and old Fort Niagara which has a publication program they publish books uh, said they'd really like to publish this because it was Fort it was Niagara and so we did that and we then we gave it to Johnson Hall so any books that are sold the money goes to them.
0: I know it's for sale at Johnson Hall what is the title?
1: Uh, sorry, it's called Molly Brandt, a legacy of her own, because she has not been recognized. Everyone talks about Joseph Brandt, but her, she had a legacy that she deserves of uh, what she did also.
0: Well, Lois Minor, Huey, I thank you very much. Thank you. This is Bob Cutmore at the American Revolution and the Mohawk Valley Conference. We're talking with Phil Weaver and uh, talking with him about the Jersey Grays. Who were they? The Jersey Grays is the 3rd New Jersey Regiment of 1776.
2: Um, They were the first establishment version of the 3rd New Jersey during the Revolution, and they're known as the Grays because they had it off white, which was a gray goods coat with dark blue lapels. And they were recruited out of New Jersey, and they came north to go go up to Canada, but instead they were rerouted to go out to the Mohawk Valley. And they spent most of their time in Mohawk Valley until they went to Ticonderoga.
0: Well, the one story I'm, I'm familiar with is when they came up to our area um, in the Mohawk Valley that uh, a detachment of the Jersey Grays were were sent to Johnson Hall to uh, arrest John Johnson, uh, the son of the great colonial leader William Johnson, and to seize his mansion. And that, well, part of that happened, but not all of it.
2: Well, you're, you're 95% correct. Uh, they were, when they were in Albany getting ready to go north, They were supposed to go and there was, their orders were countermanded by General Schuyler and said, look, I need these guys to go west. But initially, before the regiment went west, they sent a detachment under Captain Joseph Bloomfield with 40 men to go capture John Johnson. And they just missed him. The intention was not to capture the hall, but they ended up at the hall because he was gone. And then ultimately, Bloomfield and a few men took Lady Johnson and the children back to Albany. But eventually, the, the, the Johnson Hall was, was robbed by the officers of the 3rd Jersey Regiment.
0: Who were supposed to guard it, They right? were
2: supposed to guard They were actually, they weren't supposed to guard it. just wasn't supposed to be touched, because the property hadn't been confiscated yet. So they got into trouble for that. Ultimately, they just cashiered one second lieutenant. Everybody else got acquitted, and all the stuff was, was returned. And then they um, ended up having to guard it from their own men until the trials all happened. But it was a black mark on the
0: regiment that lasted for eternity. Were there uh, better days for the uh, regiment?
2: Oh, absolutely! They uh, successfully did their duty in the Mohawk Valley. Secured the uh, fort. They built Fort Dayton. They secured Fort Stanwix. They renamed it Fort Schuyler. They established their position. They ran patrols, and then ultimately they went to Ticonderoga, where they relieved the First and Second New Jersey that were their enlistments were up, and they stayed there until until the spring where they were released, and they did their job at, to, to winter at Ticonderoga because somebody had to be there, and so many of the enlistments, even among the officers, were leaving. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of what they did. They didn't really fight anywhere because it was in between, except for the patrols that were attacked. They had no real battlefield thing, but they did their job, and they did it well.
0: But, and, and, and did they stay together through the whole Revolutionary War?
2: No, this is a, this is a myth that a lot of people think. Uh, these and I've done some I did a talk up here at Fort Plain this summer about the New York troops. What they do is there's what they call different establishments. This third New Jersey regiment and the previous first and second were part of the second establishment of the Continental Army. That was basically a one-year enlistment. So then they had a new third New Jersey in 77 for a three-year period or the war, and that got a little mixed up which was the war and which was the three years. So then they had to have a fourth establishment to re-establish reset the enlistment period. So the third jersey that was here in 76, it's not the third jersey that was at the Battle of Monmouth or at the Battle of Springfield. They're different regiments. You have to determine what establishment you're involved with.
0: And I mean, did did some of the soldiers that were, let's say, up here on the trip to Johnstown, stay in the war through the duration? Certainly
2: Captain Bloomfield did because he became the major of the new establishment in 1777. Colonel Elias Dayton was the Colonel of the 3rd Regiment, all this its establishments for, for the duration. So some of the officers, but I can give you an example, instead of the 3rd Jersey, I could look at the 2nd New York of 1775 that had a company recruited out of Schenectady and a company recruited out of here in Tryon County. They ended up, I had, they had over 750 men, officers and men. They ended up, I found about 500 names, and out of those 500 names, I found 70 men that had any service in the Continental Army past that initial year. That's 10 percent. Mm-hmm. So the likelihood of somebody in the early war carrying on for the duration I don't think was very great. It, it's, it's tough to commit eight years of your life to the Army. Joseph Plum Martin was a rarity to go the seven and a half years he did, the famous uh, private Yankee Doodle. That was a long time. Most of the soldiers did not do that.
0: How did you uh, come to the the American Revolution study? Uh, I gather... uh, In fact, uh, I had the honor of introducing all the speakers. I kind of got stuck in the fact that you're you're a tailor. I mean, because you tailor uh, the... um, garb. I was I was going to say costumes, but I that's a bad word. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, <laughs> It's
2: cheap, but it's technically it is a costume. No, we do, uh, although I was a living historian. I started during the bicentennial. I bounced around with a few units. I ended up doing the second New York for 1775, which I've done for most of my career. I had a hiatus for about seven years where I started doing book selling. I started doing lectures and talks and things like this. But in the course of my time, I learned how to make the uniforms. Uh, back during the bicentennial, my mother made me a butterick pattern shirt, a puffy shirt, for lack of a better term. And I had I had learned, I'd done some tinkering as a kid. I made a pair, I cut off a pair of bell bottoms and I made a pair of what we refer to as dunga bridges made out of jeans during the bicentennial. Well, I was a hokey outfit, but that's what I started with. And my mother told me, if you want to do this hobby, you got to learn to make this stuff yourself. And I just learned how to do it. And I got better and better at it. And I put my stuff up and I got awarded some nice certificates for it, which I'm very proud of. Do you
0: still do that? I mean, make uh, the uh, garb. Yes, I did
2: because I was. I've done lot, so I made some. I've done a lot of surveillance A couple surveying pieces, and I used to make stuff for people occasionally it's really, really hard now and I've got to regroup and my, some of my equipment's down so I've been doing more writing and research than I do tailoring because my, as I've, like I'm 62 years old I've been doing this stuff since I was 21 you know and making stuff it gets harder and harder and harder and the eyes aren't as good the fingers aren't as good as they used to be I still dabble in it I do a lot of leather work I've made this beautiful valise I had here leather valise. I've done that I do a lot of things I kind of jack of all trades were you a reenactor as well? Yeah, exactly. That's what I say living historian. I don't like the term reenactor. A reenactor to me is a a guy with a pair of like I say dung of britches that I wore in my time. We had, you know, a funny shirt, a big pirate belt, you know, and a powder horn and a funny looking hat with a pi- eye patch. Those are reenactors. So they just go bang bang. I I study, I research, I look at diaries like Bloomfields. I research, I learn how the uniforms are made, I reproduce the uniforms, I do hand knotted buttonholes, every stitch has got a knot in it when they do the buttonholes. That to me is living history there 's a difference between that and reenacting in my opinion this they run they run together, but
0: did you happen to run across at this conference president Madison
2: yes, I did he 's an interesting fellow he also I know he also plays
0: uh, he does what are they? Well, he does, he does the something with the drums along the Mohawk. Yeah, he does the uh, drums along the Mohawk. The right size, so I think it's interesting. But that's that's
2: he's doing living history, and it's what we call he's trying to do first person, which we really don't do. We do an inter an interactive approach where we, we can come in and out of uh, what we're doing, but we're not playing characters. We're we're representing the person, so we can talk to you or talk to somebody else in the public, and in and out as a modern person doing this. He's doing a first person interpretation of a individual person that's tough to do yeah. that's hard and like only historics where like Plymouth Plantation is first person they play actual people you know you've got to have acting experience you've got to be able to be trained in this so I've seen us play with it once in a while we, we, we we've done little things but it's difficult it's really hard. And I'm proud that the, I'm amazed. As proud is the right word. I'm impressed by how he can do it. Yep. I really am. Man, yep. He's taking character. He ordered stuff for me and he was a character. <laughs> Very good.
0: Well, that's Kyle Jenks and we'll be talking with him as well on the Historian's uh, podcast. He plays President Madison and is also uh, the, the producer and he acts in Drums Along the Mohawk outdoor pageant, which is on hiatus this year, but they've been doing it every year for a while. Uh, Alright, Phil Weaver. Stories from the Jersey Grays of 1776, is that the book title?
2: No, it's actually, it's no book. It's basically a presentation. I'm going to start doing some articles for the journals of the American Revolution, which is an online uh, Revolutionary War magazine. I'm going to start working on that. The book is a long way away because I've got to do a unit history on the second New York of 75 first. And that's my life work, so that's got to get done before I do this. But I do want to do a book on the third Jersey grades. I really do. Where do you live? I live in Highland, uh, across from Poughkeepsie. I'm a retired worker for Central Housing Gas Electric Corporation. Um, and do you have books out there or one you want to mention? Yeah, the only book I have out right now is a brand-new, self-published book. It's called The Greatest Hits of the Colonial Chronicle, uh, the Rev War Collection. It's actually the re- a lot of rev- Revolutionary War articles and features that were done in the newsletter that I did called the Colonial Chronicle. And it is available, you go through my website, conconsult.com, that's C-O-N-C-O-N-S-U-L, short for Continental Consulting.com. And the information on, is there. You can order directly from me.
0: Okay. Well, Phil Weaver, I thank you for joining us. My pleasure, Bob. I appreciate it. We're at the American Revolution in the Mohawk Valley Conference being held at Fulton Montgomery Community College. And President James
3: Madison has arrived. Mr. President, how are you? I'm doing well, thank you. And uh, um, it's a pleasure to be here with our New York constituents.
0: My goodness. Uh, Actually, the revolution was uh, in your past. I mean, you were there.
3: Yes, sir. I was born in 1751 in Port Conway, Virginia. And uh, during the Revolution, I spent my time in the Virginia Militia uh, down in, uh, in, under my father's tutelage in the Orange County Militia.
0: And uh, did you see action?
3: No, sir. Uh, my physical constitution didn't really allow me to serve in a military capacity. So I found that my strength lied in polemics, and statesmanship and books and research. And so I went to the College of New Jersey and uh, that started my path towards the presidency. Ah.
0: So you're, you were kind of the, um, I don't know, the, the chron- I don't think maybe the chronicler of the rebellion, but the, the writer of the rebellion.
3: Well, I certainly supported the rebellion. Uh, we Virginias, I think, were at the forefront of uh, becoming independent before we even signed our Declaration of Independence. We wrote our own Virginia Declaration of Independence, you see. And uh, then I was a part of the Continental Congress. Then I became part of uh, the House of Representatives when President Washington was uh, voted in. And then I became the Secretary of State under President Jefferson. And now I am serving out the second term of my presidency.
0: You had a lot to do with the Constitution.
3: Indeed, sir. Uh, I will say that uh, unlike the goddess of wisdom, (laughs) it is not uh, the offspring of a single brain, but should be considered the work of many heads and many hands. But yes, sir, we did... Uh, initiate the uh, proceedings with the Virginia plan, which I arrived in Philadelphia 10 days early in order to be properly prepared, which is one of my tenets. How did you meet Dolly? Well, I was asked to be introduced to her. Oh, Dolly could have had any man in the entire country, I believe. She definitely is the belle of the ball. And I made a request of Mr. Aaron Burr, an acquaintance of both of ours, that I have an introduction made. And I was uh, inquired that I may pay a visit. She received me, and within about nine months we were married.
0: What about this aaron Burr? he's um, a lot of people consider him a bad actor.
3: Well let me have uh, let me pull out my diplomacy card here and say that Mr. Burr has mixed personality traits, yes, sir.
0: Uh, and you, unfortunately, were president when the, when the British came to Washington?
3: Indeed. Uh, they invaded our country, sir, and burned the federal city. The only public building that was spared was the post office. And unfortunately, the president's mansion was not spared. Neither was the Capitol, and neither was the uh, other public buildings. And so Mrs. Madison and I, after that happened, never occupied the president's mansion again. Really?
0: And she was instrumental, or was she instrumental in saving uh, items in the, what we call the White House?
3: My wife, sir, is one of the most courageous, heartfelt, humanitarian women that could possibly live on this earth. She was the last one to evacuate the president's mansion. She made sure that all our important documents, including the Declaration of Independence, our United States Constitution, all our treaties, and everything were secured properly. And the British were literally at the doorstep. We were ready to entertain guests, and we had a full table set. And she was insistent that we save that portrait of the president of the United States, His Excellency General George Washington. Mm -hmm. And so she put her own life at risk in order to save that, indeed, everyone else had left the city, but she was resolved to stay.
0: I didn't realize that. You didn't ever go back? They didn't rebuild the White House in time for you to go back there?
3: No, sir. It was 10 years in the making. So I am finishing out my presidency on a, in a rented piece of property uh, in the federal city. Yes, sir.
0: Now I must say you're looking uh, quite well, um, mm-hmm. dressed in black, a little white cravat. Is that a cravat you're wearing?
3: Uh, yes sir. I, I I would say that Dolly would be the better half as far as uh, the fashion statement I tend to prefer black and black only uh, but uh, I will tell you that I am the first president of the United States to wear trousers okay
0: well that's important that's important um, President Madison is uh, portrayed by Kyle Jenks who has portrayed other uh, people from uh, from the past how you doing
3: Kyle well, I'm doing wonderful. I, I am uh, also portraying Alexander Hamilton, which is all the rage you know. I guess. Uh, but he's a fellow New Yorker, and as I am a, uh, even though I'm attempting a Virginian accent right now, I am a native upstate New Yorker, and uh, anything I can do to continue the uh, acknowledgement and the purveyance of... Uh, New York history. I shall do my best. And and the other character that I play is one is a historically inspired character who I believe you met last year mm-hmm. in the name of Douglas McKenna.
0: Are you still doing um, Rums Along the Mohawk Outdoor pageant?
3: Yes, indeed, sir. Uh, we are going to take a hiatus this year, but we are going to uh, marshal our resources, to use a Hamiltonian term, and uh, really gear up, shall we say, for the 240th anniversary of what transpires in our drama, mm-hmm. which is largely what goes on here at the conference. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it chronicles the happenings here in the Mohawk Valley during the Revolutionary War in one particular very pivotal year, mm-hmm. 17 and 77, the, ta- the only time in history that the English army the, of Great Britain surrendered on the field of battle, and that was John Burgoyne to General Gates on October 17, 17 and 77.
0: And if people want to get in touch with you you will uh, go portray President Madison or your other characters uh, uh, to people.
3: Indeed sir I, I encourage it. I they my Facebook page and uh Uh, Some YouTube uh, videos are are on there posted so that uh, they can vet me, so to speak, and see if my presentation skills are commensurate with their satisfaction.
0: This is Bob Cutmore. A future episode of the Historian's Podcast will include one more interview from this year's American Revolution in the Mohawk Valley Conference, a chat with Bruce Venter, author of The Battle of Hubbardton, Vermont, The Rear Guard Action That Saved America. The Revolutionary War Conference will be held next year from June 8th through June 11th of 2017. We welcome contributions so we can continue producing the Historians podcast. Please donate online at GoFundMe.com forward slash Historians 2016. Or send a check made out to Bob Cutmore at 125 Horseman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. That's 125 Horseman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. This program is recorded at Dave Green's Eastline Studio in New York's southern Saratoga County.